Hello and welcome back to Let's All Go to the Drive-In, an audio history of the Drive-In Movie Theater. My name is Anne and I'll be your host. Throughout this series you'll hear the history of the Drive-In Theater from its inception, through its heyday and decline, up to its recent and unexpected resurgence. We'll examine the Drive-In's shifting role in community life and the ways in which outdoor movie screenings have remained a unique and relevant community experience even as methods of movie exhibition change or become obsolete. In our previous episode, we talked about the drive-in in in the 1930s, how Richard Hollingshead, a businessman from Pennsylvania, opened the first drive-in theater, and how others began to crop up around the United States. We also looked at the external factors which facilitated the drive-in's development, including America's burgeoning car culture and the landscape of American cities at the time. In this episode, we will be discussing the drive-in's rapid rise in popularity and its role in community life in the aftermath of the Second World War. What made the drive-in take off and who was filling up the lot? This episode will focus on the business side of the rise, how the drive-in fared on the international stage, as well as the drive-in's popularity with families. Two other topics which are heavily associated with the drive-in during this period are teenagers and youth culture. But you won't hear much about those subjects in this episode. They'll have their own episode. Tonight is family night. So without further ado, grab some blankets and hop in the car. We're going to go to the drive-in. Drive away your worries and cares at this drive-in theater, where you will see the finest motion pictures of all time, soon to be released. Now, if you listened to our last episode, you may recall it ended rather ominously with the arrival of World War II, which put a damper on any kind of commercial expansion as all efforts turned to the war. This impacted the American automobile industry in a really significant way. Rubber that would have been used for tires was now needed for combat vehicles and other equipment, and any excess rubber was donated to the war effort. We must rely more heavily on scrap rubber. Your scrap rubber. We'll turn it into tanks. We'll turn it into planes. We'll turn it into jeeps. Then our fighting men will have enough and on time. Gasoline was being rationed so people weren't driving as much. Okay, it's an A card, three gallons. You couldn't go far, but if you did get rolling, you found empty highways. No new cars were produced in the United States from 1942 until 1945, as American auto manufacturers converted their factories into massive assembly lines for combat equipment, producing everything from helmets and tents to tanks and airplanes. By 1944, Ford Motors was producing B-24 bombers at the rate of one plane every 63 minutes. The sugar house, the maples and the farm were sacrificed to make room for a plant designed to produce one consolidated Valtee Liberator every hour. Needless to say, a night out at the drive-in would have been quite an extravagance under these conditions. Virtually no new drive-ins opened during the war, and the ones that were already around frequently shortened their seasons or suspended operations entirely for the duration of the war. All that changed rapidly after the war ended. At the end of 1945, the Film Daily Yearbook reported that there were 102 drive-ins in the United States. A year later, there were 155. Two years after that, 820. By the end of 1954, there were more than 3,700. The number of drive-ins in America had skyrocketed. By the end of the 1940s, there were almost three new ones being built every day. And looking at the culture of the time, this rise seems almost inevitable. 
The drive-in was in a good position to hit the mainstream after the war. People were loving their cars, the economy was doing well, and there was a lot of open, inexpensive land. Oh, give me land, lots of land, under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me the economy was booming. The babies were booming, the middle class was expanding, and people with disposable income were starting to buy cars and move to the suburbs. The U.S. auto industry went from producing no passenger vehicles at all in 1944 to producing 6.6 .6 million in 1950. Chrysler, Ford, and GM were pumping out millions of beautiful but financially attainable cars. The cars in the 1940s and 50s were big, they were conspicuous, and they had all kinds of neat but purely aesthetic features like big fenders and tail fins. All this enthusiasm for flashy cars might seem a little shallow, but you've got to remember this boom came after the Depression and the war. Say, buddy, can you spare a dime? This was a population that had been scrimping and saving, abstaining from anything that could be considered a luxury for 15 years. And now they had money. The middle class didn't have to worry about foreclosure or rationing. They could afford to splurge a little. People wanted something a little flashy, something that was more than just practical. They wanted tail fins. That rear end looks just like a jet plane. Americans were loving their cars, and that enthusiasm sent shockwaves through everything from urban planning to entertainment to housing design. As an example, in the early 20th century, garages had been separate buildings beside or behind the house, something like a shed designed to be inconspicuous. By the 1950s, the garage was attached to the house right out front, a prominent feature of the home design. All the better to show off your shiny new car. Everything was designed to accommodate the automobile. Notice how your neighbors look with admiration as you drive out in your new Chrysler. On top of that, almost immediately after the war ends, the baby boom begins. People are settling down and having lots of children. So you have a huge population who've got money and love their cars, who are looking for something to do with their kids on the weekend. For a drive-in owner, that's a pretty stable foundation on which to build a customer base. On top of that, many of the technical bugs of running a drive-in had been worked out in the 1930s. The process of building lots and screening movies had been pretty well standardized by this point. Individual speakers were stored on posts throughout the lot and would be attached to the patrons' car windows so they could hear the sound. These speakers became the industry standard in the mid-1940s. This was by far the most effective method to date for transmitting sound at the drive-in. As you leave the theater, folks, please be careful. Don't let this happen to your car. Be sure to remove the speaker before you leave. If you should accidentally pull a speaker loose, please turn it in at our snack bar or box office. Rather than taking business away from traditional indoor movie houses, the drive-in was marketed to customers who wouldn't go to an indoor movie show. This included everyone Richard Hollingshead had been hoping to appeal to when he built the first drive-in. The elderly, people who were overweight, people who liked to smoke or talk during the movie, people with disabilities, as well as people who were concerned about contracting contagious illnesses. In the early 1950s, there were outbreaks of polio throughout the United States and Canada. In the summer of 1955, polio again struck hard across the nation. Deserted beaches became a sign of the crippler's presence. No swimmers or boaters where crowds would normally be in summertime. A children's playground with not a child in sight. The drive-in provided a safe outing for families in the midst of these outbreaks. 
1951 newspaper advertisement, the Circle Drive-In in Long Beach, California, proudly proclaimed that patrons of their theater would be flu and polio protected. But the big target market for drive-in theaters were families with young kids, of which there were a fair few thanks to the baby boom. By its very nature, the drive-in was a much more convenient night out for a suburban family than a regular movie theater. It was casual. You didn't need to hire a babysitter or get dressed up. You didn't have to drive all the way back into the city and worry about parking just to watch a movie the old-fashioned way. At a drive-in, all these concerns could be swept away as you conveniently viewed a film from your car with your spouse and children. Drive-ins in the post-war period were specifically designed to appeal to families. Many drive-ins charged entry on a per-car basis, and those that charged per person usually admitted children for free. There were drive-ins with baby bottle warming facilities. Several Texas drive-ins offered a laundry service where guests would drop off dirty clothes on the way in and pick them up clean on the way out. Up in New York, the Hempstead Turnpike drive-in would pick up grocery lists from patrons and send ushers out to buy and deliver groceries to the customers. Drive-ins booked movies with broad appeal, like comedies and westerns. These were still second and third run films for the most part, due to pressure from indoor movie theaters who didn't want drive-ins cutting into their revenue. Luckily for the drive-ins though, it didn't seem to matter what movies were playing. A night out at the drive-in was a lot more than just a movie show. This is a lovely way to spend an evening. Because you can't show a movie until after the sun sets, drive-in owners were always looking for ways to get people into the lot earlier, hoping they'd spend more money on concessions. So they came up with all kinds of activities to draw in an earlier crowd. Virtually every drive-in had a playground for children at the base of the screen. Some took it a little further by having dance floors and pony rides. But there was a chain of drive-ins in the northeastern United States that really went above and beyond. In 1950, there were six drive-ins operated by the Walter Reed chain throughout the northeastern United States. They made a habit of booking live musicians and circus acts to draw customers. Patrons packed into the lot at 6 p.m., knowing the movie wouldn't start until 9. Before the show, they might be treated to any number of amazing sights or entertainments. The Stardusters Swaypole Acrobats, an elephant perhaps, or maybe even the Great Wilno, Human Cannonball. He's known as the Great Wilno, and though the cannon is camouflaged, there's no deception, ladies and gentlemen, about his act. right over the two wheels. And just to prove it's no fluke, he'll do it again. In addition to the circus acts, Reed's drive-ins had fireworks shows, pony rides, dancing, baby parades, picnics, and even games nights where patrons would compete in musical chairs or races of the three-legged or potato sack variety. Reed described his patrons as looking for more than just a few hours at the movies. They wanted a proper family outing, a kind of hometown holiday. Walter Reed's promotions were a huge success, so it's natural other drive-ins would follow suit. But of course they didn't all have the budget Walter Reed did. One of the quirkier methods of encouraging patrons to arrive early came from the mind of one Jack Farr, owner of the Trail Drive-In in Houston, Texas. If you're ever down in Texas, look me up, look me up. If you're ever down in Texas, look me up. It was not uncommon practice at the time for drive-in owners to spray their lots with DDT to keep mosquitoes away. In 1953, 
far ran the bizarre but apparently very successful promotion of encouraging patrons to arrive early to watch him spray the lot with a big DDT fogging machine. More community-minded owners ran events with local groups like the Boy Scouts or did cross-promotions with local businesses. In 1952, the Joylon Drive-In in Florence, Alabama, encouraged their patrons to cram as many people as possible into their cars when they came to the drive-in. The Joylon had partnered with a local television store to offer a free TV set to the car with the most people. Definitely not a promotion you'd be able to get away with today. <laughs> The winning car was a 1941 Ford driven by Ray Jean Bevis, which carried in, on, or over it a mind-boggling total of 58 people. When told of his winning number, Bevis reportedly remarked, Only 58? I must have dropped somebody on the way. We see here the extraordinary service the drive-in provided in the post-war period. People weren't getting this kind of conveniently located, fun night out anywhere else. Because of their location, they were able to draw audiences from the city, the country, and the suburbs. People who would never have occasion to interact with each other in another setting were brought together by the drive-in. Indoor movie theaters, or as the drive-in industry called them, hardtops, were shutting down all over the nation, in large part due to the rise of suburbia and competition from television. But drive-ins were thriving. It was natural that with business booming in the States, other countries would start to take up the trend. There were a few drive-ins here or there in Mexico or Japan. Europe had a few, but these didn't really catch on. Europe was much more densely populated than the US. It didn't have huge areas of unoccupied cheap land. They'd suffered the repercussions of World War II much more directly than America had. The European economy wasn't exactly booming and there weren't as many affluent people. And as for the cars, well, Europeans didn't seem to have quite the same relationship with their cars as Americans did. When André Fortin, an executive of a French cinema chain, was asked why his company was not building drive-ins, Fortin replied that drive-ins are not suited to the French temperament. People won't sit in their cars to view a film. Australia was more on board than most other countries, gaining its first drive-in in 1954. Australia was, like the United States, affluent, full of empty space, and climatically suited to outdoor movie screenings. And they did have their fair share of drive-ins. But there was really only one other country that embraced the drive-in with as much fervor as the Americans had. Canada was an early adopter of the drive-in. The first drive-in ever to be built outside the U.S. was erected in Stony Creek, Ontario, just outside of Hamilton, in 1946. By the time the drive-ins hit their peak, Canada had over 300 drive-ins. The U.S. at this time had 10 times that number, but they also had 10 times the population. This statistic is rendered more impressive due to the nature of Canada's climate, which makes year-round screening impossible, though some drive-ins did try. Your attention, please. All new hotshot electric in-car heaters have been installed for your comfort and convenience. As well as the fact that Quebec, which made up a third of Canada's population at the time, had banned drive-ins completely in 1947. The prevailing explanation for this ban was that the Catholic Church, which had a lot of sway in Quebec in this period, regarded drive-ins and their reputation as a getaway for young lovers as bad for public morality. 
This ban was eventually lifted in 1967, and Quebec became as enthusiastic about the drive-in as the rest of the country. And which Canadian city loved the drive-in the most? Surprisingly, it was Edmonton, Alberta. They're on a Canadian night. We'll drift away on Lake Louise. Watching in 1949, Edmonton's first drive-in, The Starlight, was opened by a man named Norm Macdonald, not to be confused with the comedian Norm Macdonald. People told him he was crazy. Edmonton is one of the coldest cities in the country, and in the summer, the sun doesn't go down until after 10 p.m. But Norm built his drive-in anyway, and it was a hit. Turned out Norm was right to bank on Edmonton. It went on to have nine drive-ins, more than any other city in Canada. Norm worked at his drive-in from 1949 until it was shut down in 1971 to make room for an apartment complex. In its heyday, the starlight was so popular that cars were lining up at 8.30 for a double feature that didn't start till 10.20. When asked why the drive-in had such an appeal in his hometown, Norm Macdonald said, I can't tell you why Edmonton is the hottest drive-in town in the country. Nobody else can either. Some say it's because there's more unsophisticated people here than anywhere else. Others say it's because Edmonton has one of the highest cars per capita ratios on the continent. One theory's as good as the other. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, drive-ins thrived in the United States and Canada. They provided a fun night out for middle-class families looking for something fun to do with their kids. But what happens when those kids get a little older? Don't have to tell a girl and fella about a drive-in Or some romantic movie scene Why from the moment that those lovers start arriving You'll see more kissing in the car than on the screen Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy games Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's All Go to the Drive-In. I'm your writer, editor, and host, Anne Runciman. Thanks as always to my advisor, Dr. Gabriel Minotti. Be sure to check out the show on Instagram, at Let's All Go to the Drive-In, where you'll find all kinds of great photos and videos relating to the episodes. Episode 3 will be out next week. Hopefully, I'll see you then. <laughs>